and I entitle it The Bee. Oh, what a glorious thing to be, a healthy, grown-up, busy, busy bee. Welcome to the Rube Podcast, the joys of spring and summer. While the whole world was in lockdown, nature still got to spend her time outside, and she seemed to enjoy the quiet. Where should we keep an eye on when we too are finally allowed outside again? My name is Erik van Bruggen. And my name is Rosanne Onstenk. We hope you enjoy this podcast. In this episode, we discuss bees with Professor David Klein, who is chair of the Plant Ecology and Nature Conservation Group at Wageningen University and long-time bee enthusiast. I'd like to be a busy, busy bee, being just as busy as a bee can be. The idea was that we're we're gonna do a podcast on the on the joys of spring because everyone is uh, is sitting at home now and they can't go out. We thought, okay, but still, there's so much to enjoy this spring and this summer. Yeah, where where should we uh, look at, you know, to, to also feel some of this enjoyment? And we were also wondering like, how bees, how, how do they um, experience this, this corona times? Do you think they experience anything? Do you think this is a special time for the bees? No, I don't think they are affected at all by corona. Maybe uh, by the behavior of people. What I hope is that people spend more time in their own gardens and that they think, Oh, maybe a few flowers in my gardens are nice. And of course, if they plant more flowers in their gardens, um, bees will benefit because bees need flowers for just about anything. Uh, and do you think there, there there will be any difference in, in I don't know, cars driving around or something that bees think, well, it's awfully quiet here. We can now finally start doing our bee things or? No, I don't think they are affected at all. So, so bees, um, are um, central place foragers is the technical term. So they have a nest. So they move between the nest and the flowers, basically. Um, So so if there's anything between that uh, by people, that can affect them. But if not, then they will not be affected. Because I've already been stung twice this year by by bees. I think it were honeybees though. Oh, Maybe uh, maybe I also spend more time in my garden. Maybe that that is the reason. Yeah. Well, we're sitting here in my garden at the moment, and as you can see, you only see a couple of solitary bees flying around. Um, not not many honeybees. I even had a really big wasp nest a couple of years ago in the back of my garden. But if you don't mess with them, they leave you alone. Do you also have a, feel a special connection with, with wasps? Do you think like, ah, I have a, a wasp nest in my garden. I'm gonna not touch it because I like the biodiversity. Or do you think, ah, I'm gonna remove it anyway? No, no, no. If I find a wasp nest, I, I'm going to leave it. Uh, and then I, I, I do have to convince the rest of my family to that this is a good idea. But so far they are inclined to follow my suggestions. Uh, we're talking about wild bees, like solitary bees, uh, honeybees, wasps, bumblebees. What what are the distinctions? When are we talking about about what? what, what <laughs> are honeybees closely related to wild bees, and is is a wasp uh, something far away, or is are they all very uh, very similar? How does that work? They are all part of the same order, uh, the, the Hymenoptera. So wasps and ants and bees. They all belong to the Hymenoptera. Uh, and then you have suborders within that. And bees is one of these suborders. 
Um, and, and then you have um, uh, families in between that. And, and so the honeybees are a separate family from the bumblebees. And you have within the solitary bees, you have a wide range of different families. Okay, so, so solitary bees and bumblebees and honeybees are brothers and sisters and then wasps are cousins or something something like that you yeah. could say something well, like I mean, that. yeah <laughs> well but so the distinction for uh, with uh, uh, the bees is that uh, all the bees require for food only nectar and pollen and this sets them apart from just about any insects because for example butterflies which you also see uh, always on flowers the adults need nectar But the larvae, as, as most people know, they eat leaves, you know, these are the caterpillars. So, so part of the life stage doesn't require the flowers. For bees, they require flowers. It's flower power. What do they do? They hibernate in winter when there's no flowers? Or is there still some ways they can get, get some food? Because well, I saw, I mean, this, um, this spring came really early, like the, the temperatures were rising really early. And I can imagine there's not much flowers about them. For yeah, the and then bees make mistakes. So, um, so what happens naturally is with the solitary bees and the bumblebees, um, they hibernate. Um, so either as adults, for example, uh, newly emerged queens in fall, they dig a hole in the soil and they spend winter over there slumbering. And then in spring, when they think that the temperature is right, they emerge and they look for flowers and they start a new colony. But when you have these really warm um, days in January or February, every once in a while you already see queens flying around. These queens probably don't survive. Uh, and this is for some species of bees and especially for the bumblebees, uh, I think one of the biggest problems of climate change because we now have more of these events So, so more queens make wrong choices and emerge too early and then they spend too much energy. They, they can go back into the soil, but they have spent so much energy that they probably won't survive anyway uh, because there is, there is no food available in winter, obviously. When everything goes well, the bees emerge uh, at the right time and then flowers are available. Their flowers, because not all bees fly at the same flowers. They have clear preferences. So you have uh, some groups of uh, solitary bees that specialize on these uh, damn yellow composites, as they are called. They're right next to us uh, as we speak. So like the dandelions and stuff. Uh, but for example, bumblebees, they don't like to forage on these. The quality of the food is really poor. It doesn't contain all of the amino acids that they require. Uh, bumblebees do particularly well with the fabaceae, like clover. For example, uh, so so clover often flowers a little bit later in in season. Uh, so bumblebees, some species of bumblebees emerge a bit later in the in, in, in the season. But then clematis can also be beneficial if you have warmer winters, shorter winters. They hibernation will be shorter. so some species will benefit and some species will suffer. So yesterday was a really exciting day for me because I discovered a particular species that I only know from the south of Limburg in my garden. Uh, so this is uh, Halictus scabiose, um, one of these species that you know colonizes the Netherlands from the south, and this this goes really rapidly. So if you look into the bee atlas, you see that it's restricted completely to Limburg. 
that by now observations have already been made um, in Groningen. The B-Atlas uh, was published in 2012, so that's not that long ago. Oh, wow, yeah. So, so the spread of bees can go really rapidly. And this is what I always mention. People always say that nature is, is vulnerable and fragile, and this is rubbish, you know? The species yeah. that do poorly, do poorly because the things that people do to the ecosystems is, is really drastic, you know? Um, and is not in the time scale that is common in nature. And that's the reason why many, many species suffer. But actually, species are incredibly robust. So when we create the right conditions, you see that many species all of a sudden, boom, you know, they're everywhere. And this is a nice example. And it's all, always really nice when you see the illustration in your own backyard. But can it also be too hot for a bee? Oh, and yeah. It, it yeah, absolutely. If it gets 40 degrees, it's then, can yeah. it die? So, so uh, bumblebees are a good example. Bumblebees are, are actually species that are adapted to cold conditions. And this is also, you can see it a little bit there. Oh, yeah. They're big round species, which is good for maintaining warmth. You know, like polar bears, they're also, they're really big, but they're also really round. You know, they have a lot of hair, yeah. which is also that keeps them warm. And bumblebees have the possibility to vibrate their uh, flight muscles to create warmth. So this is what you often see them do on a cold spring day. They sit somewhere and then you see the, you hear them you're like a and then basically they're warming up. And there's some really cool cool research that basically shows that under really cold conditions they can heat up their thorax, so the middle part of their body. And then their tail is still, you know, only about five degrees. Whereas their, their thorax is already 12 degrees or something, the temperature required for flight. And that's why you, you find uh, bumblebees in the Arctic as sort of the only bee species that can, can live there. The downside of that is that you don't have any bumblebees in the tropics. They are unadapted to these warm conditions. So part of the problem of bumblebees at the moment in the Netherlands is that it becomes too warm, uh, it becomes uh, dry for too long a period, you know, bumblebees create these colonies. So they have to really build up the colony before they reproduce. Whereas a solitary bee, uh, they can produce two brood cells and when they die, at least they have produced two brood cells, yeah. you know, they have pro produced some offspring. For bumblebees, uh, you know, the, the drought spell may, may come too early. They, they didn't produce any offspring at all. But there are also wild honeybees? Um, yes, yes. Okay. Um, and in fact, in uh, large parts of Africa, the honeybees are still wild. Uh, but in most other parts in the world, uh, they can't maintain themselves without help from people. In Asia, you still have different species of apis. So the genus of, uh, of honeybees, um, the, where they are both managed, but also occurring in the wild. And they're really cool. I mean, I, I don't want to disqualify honeybees as, as being uncool. <laughs> they're really cool. But in the Netherlands, you know, I think uh, wild bees are even more, more cool. <laughs> Why are they cooler? Um, because they, they cope for themselves in a, in a variety of different ways. So, so not two species of wild bees are the same. They all do slightly different things. Uh, and once you you start, you know, looking in detail uh, at the different species, then you think, oh, wow, they do this. Oh, wow, they do that. 
a couple of days ago I was taking pictures um, in between the rain spells because then bees tend to sun on, on leaves in the hedge for example to warm up and they sit still and you can take nice pictures so I had one of the a picture of um, um, the red mason bee which is nesting in these bee hotels that everybody can buy you know in the, in the uh, garden centers so I was making a picture and only after I, I zoomed in, in the, into this picture I was I was seeing that it has had this huge clump of of mud in between the jaws you know which makes sense because it's a mason bee so it's, it uses it to close the, the brood cells in between but I didn't see that before so I, what's this what's this mess be below the head and then, oh it's mud oh oh how cool <laughs> And that's with, with any kind of bee species. Once you look into the details, you know, you see all kinds of fascinating stuff. So you also mentioned that, that bees do a lot of, about pollination. Um, and this is, of course, something you would hear in the discussion about why bees are so important. How does this work? Why do you think bees are so important for pollination? Can other insects do that too? Other insects do pollinate crops, but bees are, as a group are by far the most important pollinators of uh, plants, both wild plants and crops. So about 75% of all the crops we grow in the world uh, are pollinated by insects, mostly bees. Um, and especially the, the crops that give flavor to our food. Uh, are insect pollinated crops. So just about all the fruit crops are insect pollinated. Oil crops are pollinated. Uh, nuts are pollinated. So so if you if you take away these crops, you you're basically left with potatoes and rice and wheat, which is a bit boring. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. <laughs> Nutritious. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's also good to realize that many crops um, don't fail altogether if there are no insect pollinators. So many crops produce still some uh, some yield, but the yield levels are much lower. So for productivity, it is really important that you have enough pollinators. For this interview, we're looking up pictures of, uh, yeah, I think it was an apple uh, orchard in China where you have uh, uh, people just doing the pollination themselves. Do you think this is uh, a realistic future also in the Netherlands? No, I don't think so. And I've heard mixed stories about why this is the case. So the, the original story is that they have um, basically no wild bees left anymore, and that's why they have to hand pollinate. But I've also heard people say that um, it's a poor choice of variety because apples need cross-pollination. So if you only plant one variety over really large areas, um, you don't get cross-pollination. Uh, because they're basically all the same variety, the same clone. So, so then they have to move in pollen from other areas. And, and then, of course, they have to put it by hand on the flowers. So, um, so I don't know which is actually the case. I've never been in China, but the pictures are really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and we shouldn't go there. Yeah, it seems like a lot <laughs> of work. It's, it's a lot of work. And of course, this can be done because labor is, is relatively cheap in China. But this is changing also. Uh, this is definitely not possible in the Netherlands. There are also stories about um, pollination uh, robots. 
So, so robotic bees. Like Black Mirror episode. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I really don't understand why we're bothering with that because we have perfectly good species that can do it. They are beautiful, they are fascinating, they are useful, they are much more efficient than drones. So why go there? You know, why the bother? And are honeybees or wild bees more important for pollination? They're both important. So traditionally, people focused only on honeybees for pollination and people had the impression that it was just honeybees that were important. By now, there's been a lot of research into it. Most of the research shows that wild bees are actually more efficient in terms of pollination, so the transfer of pollen to uh, flowers. Quite often because they are more hairy or because they actually go for the pollen, whereas honeybees quite often only go for the nectar. Okay. But because we have these really big fields with one crop that requires insect pollination and that flowers only a short period of time in the season, you really need the honeybees to, to get enough individuals in there. So, so what you can do with honeybees, you can move in one hive or, or 10 hives and one hive has 20 to 40,000 individuals, so, so you get enough quantity. So in terms of quantity, you need the honeybees. In terms of quality, you need the wild bees. There are more and more studies that show that you need the diversity of bees to really get uh, your biggest bang for the buck. So for that, you, re you need more than honeybees. And from the wild bees, is there one species that, that you say right now, we're in May, what is the one that we should look out for? Is there like one of your favorites that people that are listening now to this podcast should go out and go and try and find or identify this species? Yeah, definitely. So there are many that are really interesting, but I think an easy one uh, for people to really discover new species is the red mason bee that I mentioned before, because it, it readily accepts artificial nest structures. So if you have a hole in the wall of your house uh, and you have a couple of plants in the, in the vicinity, uh, you could very easily get this species already there. It's really nice. It, it has these, these really small horns at, the, uh, at its face. It's uh, nice and furry. It's a bit reddish in the tail, hence the name red mason bee. Uh, and it closes it, its nest off with mud. So, so it's sort of, you know, um, builds uh, its its own nests with uh, with cement, hence the hence the name mason bee. Go out and look next to your house in some hole, and then w watch for the red tail, basically. Yeah, but also on the flowers, you know. And flowers. have a look at the flowers. I'm quite ignorant about the difference between honeybees and wild bees. Like, can you immediately tell, like, wow, this is a honeybee or this is a wild bee, or do you have species that look uh, look alike? Uh, I think to an outsider, uh, they're very similar. Uh, but if you have um, a bee that is slightly larger than one centimeter, and especially if it has these clumps of pollen attached to its hind leg, and it's not a bumblebee, then it's a honeybee. So honeybees and bumblebees are the only species that really make these clumps of pollen to their hind legs. Other species of bees usually collected somewhere in the hairs. This can also be in the hind legs, but also on the on the belly, then they have these special hairs on the belly. And there are even species that collect it in their, in their, uh, in their throat, so to say. And solitary bees, they don't produce any honey at all or just very small amounts? They, they don't produce honey. 
No. Not at all. Not at all. Nothing. So um, some species of bumblebees uh, store nectar in, in pots in their nests. Uh, and um, there are stories about people in the past that were mowing the hay and then they discovered uh, these, uh, these nests. And then they went for the for the cups with honey. But this was in the time that we didn't have a lot of sugar, that we didn't have licorice. So that was really a treat for people at the time. Uh, solitary bees, they don't produce honey at all. They just store pollen and uh, mixed with a tiny bit of nectar for their for their offspring. But why do honeybees produce honey then? Is it necessary? Yes, because they overwinter as a colony. Uh, and this is really important. It's basically the food they use for overwintering. Okay. Uh, and during, you know, uh, adverse conditions. So if it's raining for three weeks, then honeybees will survive. And many solitary bees will simply perish. Yeah. So so they're in, in that sense, they are smarter than um, solitary bees. Uh, they have the flexibility to uh, overcome prolonged periods of uh, adverse conditions, like winters. What can we learn from honeybees? Stick together. <laughs> Don't be like a solitary bee. Be this like is actually <laughs> quite literal. Literally the case because um, in wintertime when it's really cold, then then all the workers huddle around the, the queen to keep her warm. So if you have a big colony, it's easier to maintain warmth. But of course, during winter, you know, the workers die and then it becomes smaller and smaller. So, so this is sort of the trick on, on how they survive really cold winters. So they stick together. Do you maybe have a take home message for the listeners? Something they should remember, some knowledge they can use if they're interested now in these bees and they wanna, wanna do something. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so bees need flowers. So, so that's the first stop, step. We, we need to have more flowers uh, in our surroundings. And this, this can be both your own garden or, or your balcony if you don't have a garden. Um, but also in, in the neighborhood where you live. Um, so many people have the tendency to want to have everything neat and tidy. You have these lawns that are only consist of grasses, which are really boring, you know. We have to have some dandelions in there and, and preferably many more species of flowers. Grass deserts. Exactly. Um, not only with farmers, but also, you know, in, in, in villages and, and, and cities. Uh, and the next thing is uh, what is good for biodiversity in general is a little bit of messiness. Because, um, for example, you know, bumblebees can make their nests under a pile of rubbish. If you don't have the rubbish, they don't have a place to nest. Uh, or solitary bees, they are really keen to nest in these really poorly developed grass swards where you still see some soil. Many people don't like that, so they start fertilizing the lawn and then you get this dense sward of grass. And these are completely unsuitable for, for nesting bees. So a bit of bare soil in your garden, perfect, you know, keep it there. <laughs> Uh, this is actually very good news also for me. I have a very <laughs> poor lawn in front of my house. I, I, I was about to do something about it. but uh, Keep it like that. <laughs> Keep it like that. Stay messy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't clean too much. But it's wash, too hard but to wash your hands, uh, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And keep one and a half meters distance. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah. Thank you very much that you uh, had the time to, to speak about the uh, about the bees. Did you get inspired by this podcast? 
Did you enjoy spring? Or do you have another story that needs to be told? Let us know at roofoundation.nl. And also check out our other podcast. Thank you for listening and hope to see you later. Honeybee, honeybee, I must buzz off. Bzz, if you like, but don't sting me.